to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans. Uh, Romans, we're going to be in chapter 2 and a little bit in chapter 3 this morning. Um, but as we go through this, you're, I think you're going to see that we're really looking at one idea. Um, and I titled the sermon, The Devil We Know. And, you know, there's this old saying that says, the be better to deal with the devil that you know. And that speaks kind of to unknown evils or unknown dangers or things like that. Um, but as we, as we get into this, um, we're going to see that, that the devil that we talked about this morning is a devil that we are all too familiar with. Um, it's true that there are sins and perversions in this world that we have never heard of. There are things that people are doing that, to us, we've never heard or seen those things. Um, and we're certainly called to speak the truth in God's world and tell people what is right and what is wrong, what is morally true and good, and what is definitely morally wrong. Um, but there are things in the church that are going on. And I'm not talking about Macedonia specifically, although if it applies, we apply it. But in the church, in, in just, you know, God's, the, the bride of Christ, there are things that are going on um, that we have grown to accept as commonplace. These are just things that, that happen. And so those are the things that we're going to be talking about this morning. So the devil that we know are things such as false teaching, um, leader worship, definitely a big thing that happens there, and being stuck in meaningless tradition, something that the church has been plagued with all the way back into the, you know, the early 5 and 600 AD. They've been stuck in those kinds of things. So if we are wise, we will listen to the words of Paul as he speaks against the Jews and look for ways that this passage applies to us. And so that's what we're going to be working on this morning. The sermon in a sentence is, again, pretty simple, I think. Um, our sin condemns us all, no matter the status we think that we have. Um, and so that's going to be kind of what we're looking at and seeing as we go through this is the Jews thought they had a special relationship with God, a special status, which meant that they would not be... They would not receive the same severe condemnation that the Gentiles would, um, even though they were committing some of the same sins. So let's get into this. It's going to be Romans chapter 2, verse 1, through Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 20. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you su suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because your hand, uh, because your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ, but you who call, but but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are, are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish and the teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. He, uh, his praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my life God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, so we're going to break this up into three parts. And to begin with, we'll look at the first 11 verses, and we'll see that God is an impartial judge. He does not play favorites. So it seems like the first couple of verses, these first 11 verses could address all people um, before Paul specifically addresses the Jews because he does say, oh man, you oh man, instead of you know, fellow Jews. Um, but either way you look at it, this is going towards a condemnation of the Jews uh, based on the way that they held the law. So this passage, uh, it doesn't begin with a prohibition against judging. That's what some people say or some people think, um, that it says if you're judging somebody, then, then, then you're bringing condemnation on yourself. But that's not what it means. It, is, it begins with a prohibition against judging the sins of others while committing the same sins in ourselves. And so essentially what Paul is saying is if you're going to judge somebody as a thief, but you are a thief, then that brings condemnation on you. Then you are doing no good. You are not being helpful in any way. So holding up the righteous judgment of God, that is the important thing. That's what we're supposed to do. But standing on our soapbox is something entirely different. And so what Paul is telling us to do in this particular passage is, is, is yes, hold up the law of God. Hold it up for the world to see <laughs> But live it also. Live what the Word of God says. And so what we have in churches a lot of times is where people have these things that they're willing to talk about. They're willing to, to, to say this is wrong and this is evil and this is bad. But yet they're committing sins also. And so everything that they're doing and, and for good by proclaiming the, the Word of God in one area is being nullified. Or their witness, their testimony, their credibility is being nullified by doing something wrong on the other hand. So... The idea of this passage seems to be that if we judge in a self-righteous way, we are due to commit the very same sins. Now, what, what that means is so if we are if we are judging someone for what they're doing because it makes us feel better, so I can point and say, hey, you have a problem. You're doing something wrong, and then I can feel righteous in and of myself. I can feel good about myself. Then that is evil. If my judgment, if what I say is designed to be redemptive or at least instruction towards redemption, then that is a good thing. So if I see sin in someone else and I tell them, hey, this is sin, this is going to cause you pain and sorrow and suffering and it's going to separate you from God. Here is Jesus. Here is the answer to your sin. He is willing and ready to forgive you of your sin and bring you into his family. That is redemptive judgment. Okay, That is what the Bible teaches us to do. That's how we instruct people. But if instead I say, you know, you are committing this sin and you are wrong and you are evil for it. And then I go about my way without presenting Jesus to him without presenting the answer. The, the, you know, there's always people that can point out problems, right? We, we have no shortage of people that can say, this is wrong, this is wrong, complain, whatever. But the people that are offering solutions, that's what's right in the world, and that's also what's right in Christianity. So if we're telling them about Jesus, that helps. But if we're just going off our own way and living in sin, well then, what, what's going to happen is they're going to look at us and they're going to say, well, you're really no different than me. You're really no different. Your life shows no difference. So you talk about this Jesus and this transforming power, and you talk about all these things, but yet I see no difference. And so what Paul is saying to the Jews is, you had the law. You know what the law is. You're presenting it to the world, but you're not following it. 
And so you're talking about blessings of God, but you're not living in those blessings of God because you're not living in obedience. Why does it matter to us? And so that's where the problem is. So one thing that we can know is that God ensures that justice will fall squarely upon every person, both Jew and Gentile. He's not going to allow some people to get preferential treatment over others. That's not going to happen. You know, in the last couple of years, we've heard a whole lot about privilege, and we've heard people talk about all those kinds of things. Well, whatever that might be on earth, it does not exist in heaven. God has a level playing field. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Him as your Savior, you will be saved and you will enter into heaven. If you have tried any other method, you will not be saved and you will find yourself in hell. It's just that simple. So, the Jews assumed that they would be judged differently than the Gentiles because they had the law. So they believed that this special relationship that they had with God meant that they would be treated like a father treats his children. And so they would be corrected or they would be shown mercy. Whereas the Gentiles who were outside of that special relationship, they believed that they would be treated, uh, the Gentiles would be treated by God like he was a stern king. A stern king doesn't put up with rebellion. He doesn't put up with any kind of disobedience. And so they would be treated with severe judgment, whereas the Jews would receive mercy and instruction. That's what they thought. So it would certainly come as a shock to the Jews of that day to learn that judgment for sin would be applied equally to both Jew and Gentile. If the sin is the same, the judgment is the same. That's how God looks at it. And so it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or if you're a member of a church or anything else in between. Whoever you are, if you sin against God, there is judgment for that sin. So the idea that God would be lenient on some while strict on others disdains the rich goodness of God. So when we consider who God is, do we believe that God is fair and just? Do we believe that that justice and that fairness makes him good? If so, we cannot possibly think that God's going to judge some people one way and some people other ways. And you might say, well, what are you even arguing about? Because there's nobody that thinks that. But don't we really, don't we think that, that our, our membership in a church or, or the, the, the legacy of faith that we have in our lives is going to afford us more mercy and grace than, 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 maybe, than maybe some other people have that have never lifted a finger for the Lord? Well, that, that doesn't get us anywhere. That doesn't do anything. So if you're riding down the road and you're going 65 and a 55 and a police officer pulls you over, but you haven't sped in 10 years prior, and you tell that police officer, you know, you caught me on the first time I've sped in the last 10 years. Do you think that's going to change what the police officer does next? Probably not. And so the law is the same, whether you speed every day or if it's the only day in your life you've ever sped. And that's the same truth for God. But he is even more fair. He is even more just with it. So sin is sin. Regardless of the consequences, I mean, the, the circumstances, regardless of anything that you might say factors in, sin is sin. God judges it all the same. So God's kindness, and this is where Paul goes next, God's kindness is intended to lead a person to do good and not evil. He is patient sometimes. He is merciful sometimes. And those things are meant for people to turn around. Just because God is tolerant does not mean he will overlook sin, even in his own people. So he holds back his judgment in hopes that the rebels will repent but we must understand that God's wrath is cumulative. So notice what he says. He says, um, when, when we look, he says that they're self-seeking in, 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 in verse um, 
So in, in verse nine, verse nine, it says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. In, in verse five, he mentions that they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If men abuse God's goodness, they will store up wrath on the day of judgment at the end of the age. And so that's what he is saying here. So we do have to stop at this point and say, or ask, as a believer, are we going to face God's judgment? We do have to ask that question. Well, here's the thing. In this line of argument, Paul has not yet introduced Jesus as the Savior. So as he's walking down this line... He is talking to people who believe they can be justified by themselves through their own actions. And that's made clear by the very last verse that I read, verse 20, where he says, no one's going to be justified through the law, whether they obey it naturally, because, like Gentiles who don't have the law, or whether they obey it obediently, like the Jews who have received the law, you're not going to be justified by the law. So he is speaking to people that believe they are justified by their works, by their deeds. He is helping people to understand that there is no justification in your works. And you might say, well, we're Baptists. We believe in what saved, always saved, so this doesn't even apply to us. Why don't you go through and run a survey on all Baptists? We know we're saved by grace and not by works. But if you run a survey on all Baptists, what you'll find is that deep down, most people still believe there's, there's some way that they earn their salvation. They have to pay the price in some way. Whether it be church attendance, whether it be tithing, whether it be serving in, in some capacity at the church, whether it be other things that they feel like they have to do in order to be a good Christian, people still believe they have to work their way to salvation. All of this cheapens the grace of Christ. And so what we have to look at is that when people are thinking they're going to work to justify themselves, well, if they want to be on that timetable, if they want to be in that side of the, of, of, of the judgment, then they're going to not only receive the whatever reward they might receive for good work, they're going to face that judgment. So when you take Jesus and you add anything to him, you lose Jesus. That salvation is Christ alone. And so when we start adding things saying you've got to work this, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, that's when we lose the gospel entirely because it's not about what we do, it's about what he has done. And so when people believe in a works-based salvation, they enter into this conversation that Paul's having here about, about righteousness, about unrighteousness, about judgment, about storing up wrath. This is the conversation they have. Let me tell you, church, we want to live in the last part of Romans chapter 3, not in the first part of Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3. We don't want to live here. This is for those that want to work their way into salvation. And it is also for those. So let's say, for example, there's a church that 100% of the people aren't Christians. Can you imagine? I remember hearing long years ago, Billy Graham said probably 80% of the people going to church aren't Christians. I don't know if that's true or not anymore because now churches are smaller and maybe a lot of people have left. But what I do know is that in every church there's probably some people that aren't born again believers. And those people, they're probably working their way or think they're working their way to salvation. Well, they are a Romans 2 person. And they're going to feel the wrath of God because their works are not going to add up to salvation, not going to add up to righteousness. That's why it's very valid for us to be talking about these things even now. So it, sometimes it may seem that God ignores the sin of people. Maybe it seems that he is, that he is waiting for them to do something else. But just like a long-term loan, someday the Lord will call every note due. And so we see people live in sin and live in sin and live in sin. 
are like, why does God not judge that? Well, in His timing, in His patience, He will eventually judge that. Every person's note will come due at some point. So God will eventually judge every sin uh, that's not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul makes this abundantly clear in the passage that God is going to judge everything. So some people may get the idea that if God is judging people according to their works, then He must also save people according to their works. But in this passage, Paul's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about things that people are seeking. So they're seeking this. They're self-seeking or they're seeking their own glory. They're seeking their own recognition. Even they're seeking their own salvation. Those are lifestyle sins. Uh, not those that commit one discreet act. That's not what he's referring to there. So it has been said that God judges a man not by the point that he has reached, but by the way he's facing. Not by the distance, but by direction. <coughs> As Christians, we don't need to look at other people and say, wow, they're much further down the road than we are, so they, they're probably saved, we're probably not saved. Or they're good Christians and we're bad Christians. We don't need to look at that. What God is looking for is for you to turn to Him. Your progress, your path, all of that is part of His plan and part of His will. He brings you where He wants you to go. So He wants you to turn to Him. Then He will take care of the rest. So we're not to compare progress. We're not to compare those things. So if we have a testimony service in this church and someone stands up and gives a testimony and it makes you think, wow, they, they've really lived the life of a Christian. I'm over here, you know, just kind of making it. Well, don't do that. Their testimony is to encourage you. It is to lift you up. It is not to challenge you and make you compare yourself to them. God is building a testimony in you that, that is for you. So when we talk about judging the works and we talk about God judging the works of mankind for faith, it's about that choice. It's about turning to God. It's not about what all you've done yet. God's going to take care of that. He's going to walk you down that path. What it's about is about facing the direction of God. So in this, at this point in the passage, it's important for us to remember that God has no favorites. No one will receive partial treatment from Him. Now this should be something that we celebrate. This really should be because there's not some people that just have it easier or have it better or have a head start. No one does. This is part of God's justice. So if we want the reward of righteousness, we must be righteous. And so it'll really be next week before we talk about how we become righteous. But at this point, just know that if you want that reward, you have to be righteous. So now let's look at the part that is obviously and specifically talking to the Jews. Um, and we're going to be talking about the devil among the chosen. We're going to be looking at how the devil worked among the Jews and how he probably works also among the church. So this part deals directly with the Jews. Um, and we're going to see some things that I think are very, very familiar to, to, to today and to the church. So we're going to start uh, looking at things in verse 12. Um, right away, Paul addresses the benefit that the Jews might receive from being chosen um, uh, to receive the law. He states that people who sin without the law are condemned by the law. And people who sin with the law, they're condemned by the law. So if you do not have the law and you sin, you're condemned. If you have the law and you sin, you're condemned. Because the law is the law. Whether you've heard it or not, whether you know it or not, the law is the law. And so that's that's true in, in, in America. You know, that's that's one of those things that happens. If you if you are doing something that's illegal, but you have no idea that it's illegal, it's still illegal. No matter what you didn't know, you're responsible for those things. If you're committing that action, you're responsible for knowing what that is. And so in different areas we, we see that, but for God it is true. So he states that, um, uh, or it's not the, the ones that have the law who are justified, just possessing the law, that doesn't make you justified, but those who do 
the law. That is, that is, that is the way that it is, and, and that's also the way that it is in the world. So you have a lawyer supposed to be experts in the law. They can still commit crimes. Just because they know the law doesn't mean that they can't commit crimes. Well, with, with us, we have the law. Just like the Jews had the law, we have the full word of God. So that doesn't mean that we are immune from sin or that we're immune from, from judgment. That just means that we're accountable for that law that we know. And, and that, is, that is very important. So we know that the moral law of God was written on the hearts of mankind. We know this because in many civilizations, they had law codes way, way back, way, way back. And in those law codes were the same laws. They echoed the laws of God. So the Ten Commandments, um, if you've ever heard of Hank Rabi uh, and his law code, it's like 300 different laws, but in there was all the laws of God. They were, they were written in there. And so what we see is that most of what God said, at least the moral part of what God said, now Hammurabi wasn't sacrificing you know, red heifers you know, in, in the temple. That wasn't what he was doing. That's not part of the law that God wrote in the hearts of mankind. But Hammurabi knew that it was wrong to steal. He knew that it was wrong to kill. He knew that it was wrong to commit adultery. Those things were in the law. And there were provisions for those things in the law. Where it plays out is different. What God might say is a judgment for a particular sin. You know, mankind would probably have a different and a softer judgment for that same sin. But what we do know is that that conscience that God put in all of us, it does speak to his law. Part of that is still echoing around. Even to this day, people that don't recognize scripture as authority, there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, even in their mind. And so these are things that God has put there. So when Gentiles recognize and obey the laws of God, they are justified. They are justified even if they don't know that that is the law of God. So in verse 17, Paul begins to address his fellow countrymen. Um, he says specifically, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed by the law. He goes on. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, but he basically lists off these things that are Jewish pride. So he lists off things. They, they rely on the law. They approve what is excellent. Um, and that is a distinction from the world. So what does the world do? The world approves sin. The world celebrates sin. Well, the Jews were approving what is excellent, what is good, what is right, what is godly. They were approving those things. So that would be a, a point of pride for them, something that they would celebrate. Uh, they're instructing the law. They have been taught the law. That's another point of pride for them. Um, they believe that they are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. All these things lift up the Jews. But at the same time, notice what they're saying about the Gentiles. They are saying, you're a guide to the blind. So the Gentiles are blind. They are in darkness. They are foolish. They are children. So that's what the Jews were saying. That was their pride point. Was we have all of these benefits from God. The Gentiles have all of these problems because they are all of these negative things. So everything that the Jews believed about themselves was uplifting. Everything they believed about the Gentiles was degrading. Um, and all of this Jewish pride builds up, to the, builds up as evidence against them when Paul makes his accusation. He accuses them of not teaching themselves the law of God. So notice what he says first. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And the answer to all of these questions is, you know, yes, we do not teach ourselves. We do not follow the advice that we give others. That's, that's the first question. The second question, um, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? The answer is yes, they are stealing. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The answer is yes. 
You who boast in the law uh, dishonor God by breaking the law. Yes, they break the law. That's, that's the way that this actually reads. They are doing the thing that they are preaching against. And so while the Jews may not have been committing the same sins as the Gentiles, they were just as guilty of ignoring the laws of God, uh, and they did not address the problems in their own society. Th this is like carving copy of the church. So this is how the devil worked with the Jews, and it's how uh, he, uh, he works in the church as well. So as long as we can stand inside our little crystal cathedrals and point our fingers out of the world, we are satisfied that we are right with God. And so we can say, they're evil out there. And I can stand in this pulpit and tell you all about the evils of the world, and everybody agrees with me. But the Jews weren't looking within. They weren't looking at how they were living. They weren't looking at what was wrong in their lives. And so should we point out the sins of the world and declare God's righteous judgment against those things? Absolutely. But we should also look within. We should take a deep look at what we are, how we are living, how we're running the church, how we're using you know, the resources of God. We should look at everything and say what we are doing as well. So while God does want us to hold up His law so that the people of the world may know His will, He also wants us to follow His instruction for our lives. Within the church, there are all the same sins that are out there in the world. All the same sins, all the same really terrible things are happening. Um, so we've got to look at the sins in the church. We have to address them just as passionately as we address the things outside the church. It's not us, but there are people going under the name of Jesus Christ that are, you know, they're out protesting. They've got these signs about how God hates this type of person and how God hates that type of person. It's unbiblical. It is wrong. It's not something that we would do, but we see it, and they're doing it in the name of Christ. And so we should address those things as well. You know, Paul talks about the Jews stealing, but what is it that they might have actually been stealing? Um, we know about problems that, that what was going on during the, the temple during Jesus' days, how they were stealing um, from the people. But universally, the Jews robbed God and His glory. Every aspect of their uh, worship had become transactional and mechanical. And so everything that they did, from the sacrifices to the prayers, everything, there was a price tag associated with it. And it was very mechanical. It was the same thing, same way, every time. All of those things are very much bad. There was no spirit in their spirituality, but it all become ritual and routine. Um, and, and, and so we have to recognize that even though we don't have the same kinds of worship practices um, that were observed by the Jews, we can see how this accusation would stand up in the church today. Um, whether it be churches that are stuck in, in their traditions or those that are driven by numbers or so driven by numbers that they will do anything, those accusations stand against us. So, so everything that was supposed to be a, a spiritual practice to God has become more of a method or a routine or there's a book about it, things along those lines. Um, you know, those are, those are things that rob God of His glory and will mislead anyone who happens to be influenced by us. And so we have to recognize that. That it's not about following a pattern or a, or a rhythm or, or anything like that. It is ultimately about listening to God and doing what He tells us to do. When we fall into those old structures and those old pyramids, all those things, or if we fall into the new things that people are, are putting out there and saying, this is the way you do this now, this is the way you do this now, whatever we fall into, if it's not deeply rooted in Scripture, 
It misleads people. It leads them down the wrong path because it's a human knowledge, it's a human strength rather than God's strength himself. So again, the Jews may not have been perpetual adulterers. He talks about adultery. But we know from our study of the Old Testament, many times adultery is an illustration for idolatry itself. And so one thing that happened after the exile, the Jews didn't fall into worshiping foreign gods or false gods, idols, things like that. But what they did have a major problem with was worshiping their religion instead of the God of their religion. They had a major problem with that. And so it's very easy for us to see idolatry in the church today. Um, if, we, if we have these old sacred cows of old-time religion, and you know what I mean without me having to say all those things. Um, and also the celebrities of the new age of Christianity, we have all those things too, and people worship all those things as well. So whether it's some piece of furniture that was donated by great-great-granddaddy, or it's some you know buff, hair-jailed, uh, skinny-jean-wearing creature today, people are worshiping these things. They're, they're living this as their religion instead of focusing on God himself, on Jesus Christ who died for their sins. It's, you know, pastor this and it's pastor that, or it's, you know, this is the way that it's always been, or this is the way that it's always been. Both are evil, both are wrong, both are idolatry. We need to focus on Jesus Christ, not on the things that are the trappings of religion. Because when we start identifying with those things, we start going down those paths. And so then we become part of the problem instead of actually following after Jesus Christ. We also lose our credibility. So no matter what it looks like, idolatry is always poisonous and it is always an offense to God. If you're lifting up a leader and saying, hey, this is the guy you follow, that's wrong. If you're following after an old traditional path or whatever, that's going to be wrong too. We need to follow after Jesus Christ himself. So it's not about how it's always been done. It's not about the new way that people are doing things or anything in between. It's about God himself. And when we get that all mixed up, we start having some major problems. So when we look at the next thing where he starts talking about robbing temples and things like that. So there, a little bit of background on that. In the first century, there were very zealous Jews. There were people that were like mercenaries, but they were Jewish. And, and there were times that they would go in and they would rob pagan temples. And they said that this was not stealing. This was not wrong because those were false gods. And so they would go in, you know, kind of strike and, and take things. And what they were supposed to do was destroy all that. You remember Jericho and Achan and, 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 and taking a little for himself, that kind of thing. So but sometimes they would sell some of that stuff or sometimes they would use some of that stuff for currency or things along those lines. So that would be a very evil practice in those days. Um, and we can see some of the same things in the parallel, right, parallel in the church today. So how often do we condemn the world yet use the strategies of the world in our churches? So there were some pretty influential books written in the 60s and 70s about leadership strategies and things along those lines. And I'm telling you that that was used and implemented in churches across the nation. Is that wrong? It depends on how it was implemented. But what I will say is this. When we attempt to use the plans of man to accomplish the will of God, we are ignoring the power that God gives to his faithful followers. You cannot put God in a box and say, okay, so this strategy worked in the business world, so if we apply it and we pray, then it's going to work in, in, in the church world as well. That's not the way it goes. We are robbing God of his glory when we try to do those kinds of things. The Jews were also guilty of breaking the very laws that they were proud to own. So it should come as no surprise that the Jews were as likely to sin as anyone else. As a church, we should remember that we are also likely to fall into sin if we are not careful. Now, here's where this all comes down. This is where it really matters. When we sin, 
we lose all credibility with the world. When we're struggling with the same kinds of sins that, that we're condemning, we are losing credibility. What happens when we lose credibility? We can't speak the truth to people. They won't listen. They won't hear it because they're telling us that we're just as bad as anyone else. Right now, when people talk about the church, they see our sins. They see our shortcomings. They see that we are no different from them. So everything from sexual sins to struggles for power are prevalent in our church to this day. And so when we tell the world about God, they don't want to listen to sinners who are just like them. So if you look at the, the political world today and you see the division between one side and the other, that same stuff exists in the church. It exists in kind of the bigger organizations of the church. And I'm sure there, there are churches all over America where even in a single, you know, contained church, there's all these little struggles for power, people trying to position themselves in their own little kingdoms. All of that is evil and wrong. It's all part of what drives us away from each other, drives us away from God, and weakens our testimony. So Paul accuses the Jews of being a priest nation in reverse. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now that's actually a quote from a psalm, and it's referred to referencing David and some of the things that he did, and the fact that, that people are defaming the name of God because of some of the things he did. But Paul is applying it to all the Jews, and we can apply it to us even as well. Because here's the thing, when we when we consider it. When a church falls into sin, we're doing the very same thing. If you listen to the way that the world speaks about the bride of Christ today, it's not our love or our faith they recognize. It is our sin. That's what they talk about. They talk about the, the preachers doing bad things with kids. They talk about the money problems. They talk about all kinds of sins. They don't lift up Jesus Christ. They don't talk about our faith. Remember how we started this study in Romans where Paul said, you know, your faith is known throughout all the world. And, and people are talking about the fact that you believe in God. When's the last time you heard you know, a news report or something? Well, this church is a church of faith, and they're a church of love. And they, they, they give, and they, and, they, and, they, and they make a difference in the community, and they show us how to live. We haven't ever. I don't know that there's been a statement like that in a press anywhere. I don't know. The reality is we're not known for that. We're known for what we do that is wrong. So we will never be effective evangelists as long as we are mired in the reputation of those who have broken the laws of the very God they claim to follow. So Paul talks a little bit about, about circumcision here. He talks about that being a distinct, like a national distinguisher of, of, of who the people are and that kind of thing. And essentially, what he's saying is that if you are circumcised but you break the law, you lose your circumcision. If you are uncircumcised but you keep the law, you gain your circumcision. So while Christian churches today, we don't universally practice circumcision, we do practice baptism and communion, and the same thing would follow. You might be freshly baptized, you might have just had communion um, just recently, but if you go out and sin against God, your baptism and your communion are, are of no effect. If you defame the name of God with your life, you're showing that that was not a spiritual change. You might have went through some, some, some you know, lessons, or you might have you know, jumped through some hoops. But if it didn't change your life, it's not real in, the, in that way. And that's what Paul was saying about circumcision is if, if you were circumcised but you weren't a Jew, because a, a Jew, a true Jew, is one that follows the law, one that follows God. And so if you just have these, these, these exterior things but you don't have the heart, you are not justified. And so he continues to talk about those things. So obedience to the commands of God, they are a blessing in our lives. So then he talks about what advantage is it to be a Jew. And he says much in many ways, but he only gives us one thing. At the very beginning of chapter 3, he gives us one thing. 
is this to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then it kind of goes on um, and starts asking some questions. But that's one thing that we know is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And isn't that true of the church as well? Don't we have the teachings of God? Don't we have the full word of God? That is a great advantage. But it also is something that judges us if we don't follow it, if we don't obey the word of God, if we don't listen to the word of God. So Paul, this isn't the first time Paul's made these arguments. And so he knows what's going to happen. People are going to ask questions. And so that's what a good bit of the first part of chapter 3 is about. People ask questions based on some things that he's already said. Um, so he says if, if somebody's unfaithful, does that mean that, that God has, is not faithful anymore? Because if God said he's going to forgive you, but then you sin, does that mean that God's unfaithful? And that's not what that means at all. What Paul's saying is that no matter what we say or what we do, God is true. God is faithful. God is just. And everything that he says is good and right. He gets into some of these other questions, and these start sounding incredibly familiar. He says that if, if our unrighteousness illustrates the righteousness of God, shouldn't we just keep on sinning so that God's mercy can show, so that God's glory can show? Shouldn't we continue to do that? And isn't it even unjust for God to judge us in that way? And I will say this. Throughout the history of the church, there have been several heresies that led people to believe that morality didn't matter. It happened in church history multiple times. You do whatever you want to do. God's going to save you anyway. It's still happening today. People are saying God's more concerned with your happiness than He is your righteousness. People are still trying to get away from living a moral life that honors God because they would rather live a life that makes them happy, at least in the interim time. So when we say that we don't have to worry about the law, that we don't have to worry about morals, when we say that, we are again going against God. We are falling into one of the arguments that have been around for 2,000 years. Paul settled it then, and it will continue. So, at the very end of this, um, those that believe that they are the people of God, but only resting on their status, they will be judged by the righteousness of God. It's not about our status. It's not about who we are. It's about what we have chosen to do with Jesus Christ. So the very end, Paul gives, uh, explains our universal guilt. He concludes his condemnation of all people by stating resoundingly that all people have sinned and strayed away from God. So the point of this passage is to help us understand the hopelessness and futility of our own efforts. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying Gentiles are guilty. Jews are guilty. Everyone is guilty. And so that's why he says there's none righteous, no, not one. He goes on to illustrate that with their throats and their words and all the things that they do. All of this is evil. Every person is unrighteous. He, he lays that out and makes it very plain. And that's important for us to recognize. Again, in verse 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, for someone to say, well, I didn't know this about the law, and so I should, it shouldn't affect me, it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, if, if you go to sleep at night, and a storm rolls through in the night, and it doesn't wake you up, and you wake up in the morning, it still rained. There was still a storm, whether you knew it or not, whether you're aware of it or not. Those that say, if we have the law that protects us from judgment, that's a little ridiculous, don't you think? Because if you have a lawnmower, does your grass still grow? It does, doesn't it? Whether we have it or not, it still grows. If you have an oven, 
do you still have to personally go cook the food, or does it just magically pop out? No, the reality is everything works that way. Just because you have it doesn't mean it works for you. You have to follow it. You have to obey. You have to go the way that God tells us to go. So from this passage, from kind of long passage, we can learn a few things about the doctrine of sin. This is how Paul taught it. This is, this is what we need to understand. Sin is universal. It involves both Jews and Gentiles. All of us are under sin. Every one of us. This is where Paul's leading us at, at this part of the passage. Second, sin is a failure to respond to God. It's not so much the things that we do. It's the fact that we don't listen to God. We don't do what He says. We don't, we don't deal with the, the things that He has revealed to us. So think about all the way back in chapter 1. God revealed Himself in nature. That His divine nature, His, His powerful attributes, he, he revealed those things and people ignored Him. So responding to God, that is our failure to respond to God, that's what sin is. Another thing that's important to point out is that sin is personal. There's no point in this that, that, that Paul blames Adam. Well, the reason you all sin is because Adam and Eve. That's, Paul doesn't do that. He makes it personal. You made these choices. We did these things. We went this way. Everyone is under sin, and we are dominated and controlled by this evil power. That sin is present in each of our lives. We are universally guilty and unable to right ourselves. We are looking for a Savior. So that's where it leads us. And so here we are on Palm Sunday. We're thinking about what, um, what Jesus did. And here we are at the end of, not the end of Romans chapter 3, but the end of this passage, where every person has been placed under the condemnation that, that, that we have broken God's laws. Paul has did everything that a human writer using normal human communication can do to help us understand there is no way for us to earn our salvation. There is no way for us to earn our way into heaven. There is no way for us to earn righteousness. We are guilty. We are condemned. And we are awaiting our judgment. That's where he leaves us. That's a rough place to leave on Palm Sunday where we're supposed to be celebrating Hosanna. But let me tell you, Jesus has died for us. He has paid that price. And so all of that work that people do to try to justify themselves, all of those things that people think are going to save them, those are all fruitless. But Jesus has paid the price. He is our Savior. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I've tried to earn my way to salvation, well, Paul just closed the door for that for you. You will never earn your way to salvation. But what you can do is turn to Jesus Christ. And so that's where this passage turns next. Next week we're going to be looking exactly into the face of the cross. We're going to be looking into Jesus Christ and the Christ that He takes. So the reality is when we look around, um, there's no perfect churches, there's no perfect people. But there is a perfect Savior. And so let's leave here thinking about Him. Let's be thinking about that Savior that gave His life for our sins. Let's worship Him. Let's praise Him. And this week, especially as we're, we're in the, the Holy Week, let's tell other people about Him. Because they have no hope other than that. If you are now convinced that there's no way to be saved except through Jesus Christ, try to help other people understand that. Because they don't know. They just don't know. They think they can turn it around. They think they can do a few things. There is no amount that we can do. It's not an amount. It's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to study your word. And I pray that, that as we've done this, it can seem pretty dark and it can seem pretty bad that, that there's no way for us to be saved. But when we reach the, the very deepest and we realize that it is the very darkest, that's when we look and see Jesus. 
and His word, His actions, they lift us up. The light of the truth of what He has said and done is what brings light into our lives. He speaks life to us. And I pray that we can follow Him. That we can truly trust in Him. Let us abandon all hope in everything else and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross because there is no other way for us. There is no other hope. We're going to stand in this world and we're going to hold up your truth. And the only thing that's going to justify us is the blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will do that. I pray that we will have the courage and the boldness to do that. But Lord, as we gather here this morning, we declare that there is no hope for us outside of Jesus. Let us make that uh, a, a bold statement in our lives so that as we, go, as we leave this place, we're not thinking about what we can do. We're thinking about what we, He has already done. Make this a week of worship for us and celebration. And I pray that that worship spills over into our conversations with people as we go through this week, letting them know that we are still amazed by what Jesus has done for us. It's in His name we pray. Amen.